You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, Mill Creek. Pastor Jeremy here, meeting with you virtually and reading the text through the wonder of technology. Uh, This morning, my family and I are at family camp, but we look forward to being with you again soon. And you are in for a treat as Mr. Jonathan Drundle comes to bring the sermon this morning. But for now, I'm going to be reading the text. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in the ESV version, if you're looking it up virtually, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And out of respect for God's word, if you're able, would you please stand? From the text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Now, Lord, I pray that you would give grace to Jonathan as he brings this sermon. I pray you'd give him clarity and you'd give him relevance. Lord, I pray you'd inspire faithful preaching. Lord, bless those who listen, give soft hearts, sharp minds, a willingness to listen and obey. And get the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up, I remember learning about Jesus at a really young age. I'm so thankful that when my family and I went to church, we heard the gospel. And I remember wrestling with what it meant to be a Christian. I remember realizing that I was a sinner and that I needed salvation. And I came to the conclusion that Jesus was the only way to receive that salvation. So by the time I was 10, I accepted Jesus as my savior. Now, in all honesty, that part was easy for me. You know, accept Jesus, no problem. But just because I put my faith in Jesus didn't mean I had a solid understanding of the gospel. I remember every night when I went to bed, I used to pray for God to forgive me of my sins. I'd lay there in bed and I'd recount all the sins that I did during the day. I'd pray, 
God, please forgive me for lying to my parents. God, forgive me for cheating on that spelling chest. God, forgive me for hitting my brother, even though he deserved it. You see, I was living in fear. I was terrified that Jesus was going to return in the middle of the night, and I was going to be condemned for my sins. You see, I couldn't connect the dots between having faith in Jesus and being completely absolved for my sins. The truth is, I didn't have clarity on what it meant to follow the gospel. My fear was rooted in the fact that I didn't quite understand what it meant to be justified. Now, if you're here this morning and you too have had similar fears, or if you've had those fears in your past, I give you an assurance this morning that we can be confident that once we are saved, we will be saved forever. Well, good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. I am so grateful to have you all here this morning. You are now joining us as we're continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Romans. So far, we've covered the first four chapters of the Bible. And Paul has been hammering into the doctrine of justification. Paul has been telling us that justification means being guilt-free before God. It's the act of being declared righteous or in right standing with God. Now, so far, Paul has been telling the Roman church that in order to be justified, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to receive salvation. You see, in the first century uh, Roman church, they had some confusion, much like my younger self. They quite didn't understand what it meant to be justified in Christ. So Paul was hammering in this, into this doctrine to show them that we are justified not by works, but by the work of Jesus and through faith alone. Now, this morning, as we continue on in Romans chapter 5, we're not going to learn how we are justified, but what it means to be justified. So if you will, please open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul says this in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in these opening words, Paul's doing two things. Number one, he's reiterating what he's been teaching for the first four chapters, that justification is through faith alone. Now, on the other hand, he's also reassuring that this Roman church are already Christians. He's saying, since you have already been justified. Now, this text is primarily speaking to Christians this morning. But if you're here this morning and you quite haven't committed to this Christian thing, I invite you to lean in with us because this passage has crucial implications for your life. So as we dive into this text, I invite you to, to lean in with us. Let's examine our first question this morning. What are the benefits of justification? Well, here in verse one, Paul says the first benefit of justification is that we have peace with God. Now, as we go throughout the Bible, we see that peace is a very important term. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created humanity. And when he created humanity, he created them to have perfect relationship with him. But by the time we get to chapter three in the Bible, rebellion has struck in mankind. 
And rather than obeying God, they're thrown into disobedience. And, and now where there was perfect relationship, we have war and hostility. The connection between God and man is broken. But as we travel further through the Bible, we see that God is providing a means of restoration. God is providing a way to reestablish the peace that was broken in the fall. In the Old Testament, we see that peace is based on covenant faithfulness. In order to be at peace with God, you had to be a member of the Mosaic Covenant, and you had to follow all 613 laws. And if you were to break just one of those laws, you would have to make atonement for your sins by giving a sacrifice. And what that meant was, year after year, they had to keep track of every sin they committed and give sacrifices for every single one. So in this Old Testament system, they were constantly striving after peace. It was always this distant horizon that they could never quite reach because no one was capable of fulfilling God's laws. Now, as we step even further in the Bible, we learn that God is providing a new way of peace. In the book of Ezekiel in chapter 37, God promises that he will send a shepherd. And with the shepherd, he will make a new covenant, a covenant that's not based on works, but based on peace. Now, of course, as we step into the New Testament, we learn that that shepherd is none other than Jesus Christ. And this new covenant is not based on our fulfilling a law, but based on Jesus's faithfulness. You see, in this new covenant, Jesus lived the perfect life and that he died on the cross to take the condemnation that we deserve for breaking God's law. So now Jesus becomes the once and for all sacrifice. Now, peace is not this distant horizon that we're chasing after, but peace is come near. In this new covenant, our relationship with God has been restored, and it's not something that we're striving after. But what do we mean by peace? Uh, unfortunately, I think peace is often misunderstood in the church. I hear people describing peace as, it's, uh, as if it's some sort of feeling or an inner comfort. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about peace. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel can't give us an inner comfort because that's uh, an effect that we can have by feeling the peace that we have in the Bible. But when the Bible is talking about peace, it's talking about an end to hostility. It means the war between God and man is over. It means we've been brought back into right relationship with God. And no longer are we his enemies, but we have been brought back into the fold. Biblical peace is no fleeting feeling. It is a concrete reality. Biblical peace means that our soul is no longer in danger of condemnation. It means we no longer have to lay awake at night in fear of judgment because we've already been forgiven. But peace isn't the only benefit we see of justification. As Paul goes on in verse 2, he says this, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now as Paul goes on here, he says that the second benefit of justification is that we have access to the grace of God. 
Now, once again, I think, unfortunately, grace is another one of those terms that we fail to understand. I hear people talking about grace as if it's uh, this thing that we're working towards, something we're earning. People talk about it like, if I just read the Bible enough, if I just pray enough, if I'm just faithful enough to God's word, then he'll bless me. Now, on the other side of the page, there's those people who understand that grace isn't something you can earn, but they feel as though it's something you have to beg for. If I just pray hard enough, God will bless me. Now, the problem with both of these beliefs is it's inconsistent with the Bible. As we work through scripture, we constantly see that grace is a free gift that we cannot earn. And as Paul says here, we've already gained access. Think about it like this. When I was younger, I had this dream of living inside of Walmart. <laughs> I mean, how cool would that be? You got all the toys, the food, the games. I mean, everything you could ever want. If I was in Walmart, I could have access to everything. But here's the thing. Right now, I couldn't afford to buy a Walmart. And I definitely couldn't afford it as a child. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about grace. But rather than living inside of a department store, we are living inside of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we have all the access to the goodness of God. Once we have everything, there's nothing left to work for. Jesus has given us everything. We already have access. And that's where the disconnect was for the Roman church. The Romans were acting like faith in Christ was a first step in the Christian faith. And then after that, you start working towards God's grace. But in reality, faith isn't the first step of Christianity. Faith is the entire substance of Christianity. Once we have faith, we have everything. Once we have Jesus, we have everything. There's nothing left to work for. We already have access. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he not only saved us for, from our sins, he restored us to right relationship with God. We've been brought back into the fold as children. And now, as children, we have been given the keys to the kingdom. We have everything. And that's why Paul says, as he goes on in verse 2, that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Realizing that our relationship has been restored. Realize God has given us access to his entire kingdom. We should look forward to the day when Jesus, is, Jesus comes and we should rejoice. On that glorious day, we don't have to be afraid of coming before God and living in fear. Because we've already been forgiven. We've already been given everything that Jesus has to offer. So we should look forward with hope and rejoice. Now, I'm not here telling you that I always have the ability to fully rejoice in Christ like I should. But one of the things I like to do when I'm failing to have joy the way I should is to turn to Scripture and read about the times when we will finally come before Jesus in all of his glory. One of my favorite passages is Revelation chapter 1. When John, for the first time, sees Jesus shining in all of his glory. 
And what does he do? He falls down on the ground. But rather than being left in fear, Jesus comes and sets his hands on him and tells him to arise. Because he's already been forgiven. Now, at the same time here, Paul's not telling us to live with our heads in the clouds. We can't just spend all of our life thinking about that age to come. We have to be here in the now. And in here and now, there's suffering. There's hurt. There's pain. That's why Paul goes on to give us the third benefit of justification. He says, we have the ability to rejoice in our sufferings. Read what he says here in verses 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here Paul makes a surprising point. We can rejoice in suffering. Now that's shocking to us, but this would have been really shocking to the Roman church. If you've been tracking with us through this sermon series, you realize that there was two groups of people in the Roman church. There was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, the Jews were brought up in a world where they believed if you were suffering, it meant that God was punishing you. And Gentiles, likewise, were brought up worshiping hundreds of gods. And if they were suffering, it probably meant that they had somehow offended one of those gods. And they needed to figure out how to make appropriate sacrifice. But now these Romans are Christians. And as Christians, we need a new understanding of what it means to suffer in this world. And as we turn to the Bible, we realize that each and every one of us exists in a state of suffering. We will suffer while we're on this earth. This world is broken and we will exist in suffering. But what we see here is that for the unbeliever, suffering are the pangs of death. But for those who have been justified in Christ, God leverages these sufferings to build in us the likeness of his beloved son. God is transforming us to look more like Jesus. Now, I want to give you some assurance here this morning. If you are currently suffering and living in hurt, God is not punishing you. Suffering is not because God is punishing you for your sins. What the Bible says is that in our suffering, Jesus comes and suffers with us. Jesus is equated with your hurt. He's equated with your sorrows. When you weep, he weeps with you. And I don't know why we suffer the way we do, but we have to understand that God loves you and he wants to use your suffering for good. God is leveraging the suffering of this broken world to build, build in you the goodness of God. And what Paul says here is that when we suffer, God builds in us endurance. And what he means by endurance is a lasting, strong faith. A faith that leans more and more into the power and the strength of God. And as we lean into the strength of God, we start to reflect the character of God. 
We call this process sanctification. This is the process where God transforms us and bestows his image upon us. And as we start to experience, experience God's character, we get to gain glimpses of eternity now. We get to experience the life that is to come when we will fully step into the glory of God. And that builds in us hope. A hope that though we suffer, though that we are in pain, God will finish a good work in us. You know, Christians, there are so many people who, who have hope in this world, in false faiths and false deities, who will one day stand before God in shame. But for you and I, we can have confidence. Confidence that when we stand before God, we will not be put to shame because the love of the Holy Spirit is being poured into our hearts. We can have this confidence. We can hope, not only looking forward to the future and the glory of God, but look, look down at our lives now and hope that God will always be with us and he will never leave us because he is with us. Church, we don't have to fear the coming judgment. Our relationship has been restored. God has brought us peace and we are living in his beloved grace. But that begs another question. How can we be confident that we will stand before God justified? How do we know for sure that when the day comes, God will not send us into condemnation, but will welcome us into his kingdom? That's why Paul goes on to answer a second question. How can we trust that we will remain justified? Now, what I'm talking about here is an assurance, of faith, uh, an assurance of salvation. How can we trust that we are saved and we will remain saved? And Paul goes on to answer that question. He says here in verses 6 through 8, For while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Now what we see here is that the assurance of our salvation is rooted in the death of Christ. But there's something we have to understand. Christ died for us, but he died for us while we were sinners. And that's why we can have assurance. The first reason why we can trust that we remain justified is Christ died while we were still sinners. Now, church, this is a very hard truth to come to the reality that each and every one of us are guilty outside of Christ. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul's point here is very aggressive and very direct. He's calling us sinners. And, and I know for me, my tendency is to downgrade how sinful I am. I don't like to think of myself as, as deserving of condemnation. But that's not what the Bible says. 
Now, I've been guilty in the past of describing my sinfulness and being saved by Christ as like a drowning man out in the ocean being rescued. But read here what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in, once you, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the world. What Paul is describing here is not a man who's drowning in the ocean, but a man who's already drowned. Paul says we are dead in our transgressions. Outside of Christ, we are at the height of sinfulness. But Jesus died for us at the lowest of low, and that's why we can trust that we remain justified. If Christ died for us back then, when we were dead, how much more so now that he's already begun a good work in us? We can be confident because Christ died when we were at the lowest of the low. And that's what Paul goes on to say here. He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here Paul says that the blood of Christ is sufficient to abate the wrath of God. But he also ups the ante. He says not only were we sinners, but we were God's enemies. The second reason we can trust that we remain justified is because Christ died while we were his enemy. Church, there's a lot of evil people in the world. But for the most part, those evil people don't affect our day-to-day life. We may be grieved by their deeds when we hear about them on the news, but when those sins become personal, when we're the victims, it hits so much harder. Last semester at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I had a professor share a story about his time as a pastor. Well, he was pastoring a church. News came out that sexual assault was happening in his church, that several of the children in the ministry were affected. As you could guess, he was horrified. But news hit even closer to home when he realized that his daughter was one of the victims. When I put myself in his shoes, when I put myself in the shoes of his daughter, I want justice. I want this man to be punished. But what the Bible tells us that if there's anyone who deserves to punish us for our sins, it's God. We're not just a bunch of sinners running around in the earth, hurting ourselves and those around us. Our sins are a direct assault on the character of God. You and I were created to reflect his image. You and I were created to take care of his perfect world. And we rebelled against him. 
We have tarnished his image with our sins. We have destroyed his creation, bringing it down into sin and death. We deserve judgment. And when I look at our sinfulness, it's not shocking to me that a predator would take, take advantage of an unexpected church. But what's unexpected in my professor's story is not that a predator stuck in and attacked these helpless girls. It's when this man was finally brought to justice. My professor's daughter came to him with tears in her eyes, saying, Dad, I have to forgive him because that's what Jesus did for me. That's the crazy, reckless love of the gospel. That's the love that goes far beyond our human understanding. That's the love that Christ has for you. Paul tells us as we reflect on these truths, as we realize our sinfulness, our response is to rejoice. Here's what he says in verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says, rejoice in our reconciliation. Because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Because Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Because Christ died for us at the height of our sinfulness. Paul says rejoice. He says we can rejoice because we can look forward at the hope of the glory of God. He says we can rejoice because we can look at our present life and realize that God is transforming us. And he says we can rejoice because we can look back at the cross and know that Jesus' love is maxed out for you and for me. Paul says rejoice. We can rejoice because we can have confidence that our salvation isn't resting on our works. We can have confidence that we don't have to go every night praying that our sins will be forgiven. We can have confidence because our salvation rests on Jesus who died on the cross for you. Paul says rejoice. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have faith in Jesus, this passage has a very offensive truth for you. You deserve condemnation. But there's also good news here this morning. That if you would turn from your sins, if you would leave your former life behind and follow Jesus, that you too can have assurance of your salvation. You too can rejoice in the gospel you too can be certain that when you stand before God in heaven, that you will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven.
I encourage you this morning, if you're wrestling with what it means to be a Christian, if you are wondering what it takes to follow Jesus in in faith, please reach out to someone this morning. Talk to somebody about the gospel and accept Jesus into your life. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we are completely forgiven for our sins. Lord, I thank you that you died on the cross for us. Though we were worthless sinners, though we were completely deserving of condemnation, you gave a love that goes beyond all human understanding. God, we thank you and we praise you and we rejoice in your holy name. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.